You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey, y'all, it's Bridget here. Julie and I had the pleasure and the honor of chatting with the one and only Mr. David Wandrich. We spoke to him, y'all, a few months ago when he was completing the Oxford Companion to Spirits and Cocktails with Noah Rothbaum. Now, let me tell you something. If you are a spirit nerd or a beverage professional, this book is a must for your library and it is available pre-sale today anywhere where you buy your books. David tells us all about his process of writing, his journey of being a beverage historian and so much more. So sit back, relax, grab yourself a Maker's Mark cocktail and enjoy the show. David, welcome back to Served Up. Julie and I are really happy to have you on the show today. Oh, I'm very happy to be back. Lovely to see you guys. I can actually see you right now. That's nice. I think you're actually our first repeat guest. Oh my God, I'm honored. I think so. So we hope to have you back again and again. That's how that I works. will come back. Just with you, David. That's you guys ask the questions. So, you know, that helps. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and get started. You know, David, how did you become the authority on beverage history? It's such a unique niche that you have found and an important one and one that we all look towards you to gain that knowledge <laughs> of the past of our industry. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I basically invented this job. And when I invented it, I didn't know what it was that I invented. So uh, it was a it was a good, good long time ago, uh, tw- over 20 years ago, uh, when I started writing for Esquire magazine, doing a uh, cocktail of the week column for their website. And I researched the history of the drinks as, as well as I could. Uh, the internet was starting to grow and you could find stuff that was unavailable before. Uh, stories, books, things like that. And so I started, you know, my training was in in literature and uh, literary history and uh, and comparative literature, which means you look at stuff in different languages and, and traditions and try to put them together. And so that's what I do. You know, I try to put different traditions together, like history of this and history of that. What happens? Oh, they meet right here in the middle. Let's look at that. So that, and, you know, drink, drink history is like that. It's cultural history. It's uh, industrial history. How do they make this stuff that changes very much? And it changes how things work and how we approach, uh, approach things. It's commercial history. It's all kinds of stuff. So it, it, there's always an angle that's interesting. You just have to look around for that angle. And, uh, that was basically what I'd been trained to do. So it didn't seem too weird to me, but, uh, it turned out there weren't a lot of other people doing it. So that was kind of, uh, uh, a mind blower that uh, suddenly I was the guy who did this. And that was, uh, that was weird. <laughs> <laughs> weird. I'm not going to deny. 
I mean, well, David, um, obviously you're a history buff. You must be to oh, yeah. take your time to do all this research. I mean, man, just before this, just before we started, you were t- telling us how you're, you know, um, scanning old postcards of old bars, you know? So, you know, my question to you really is, you know, where does that love of history come from? I kind of grew up with it. Uh, my father was Italian and he was uh, born in Trieste, the Wandrich, but, uh, but he was also half Sicilian and we had family in both places. And Trieste is an old town and the town in Sicily that we were from is very old. And my mom came from a, an old New England family. So uh, we spend a lot of time up there too. And kind of the weird old America up there, you know, uh, making root beer and drinking moxie and uh, eating lobsters by the, by the sea and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and there was always uh, history being talked in history books and we traveled a lot when when I was a kid because all of my father's family was still in Italy. Mm-hmm. He came over by himself. So we went back to see his family and to see our family, you know, and I'd hang out with my cousins and uh, these old towns and things like that. So it was uh, that was always part of growing up for me. When you studied literature in college, did you always know you'd be writing about cocktails or did that just kind of happen? Oh, no, 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 no. That's not a job that your guidance counselor knows exists, you know, <laughs> or your college counselor for that matter. I was, I went to uh, college in 1979. I was a freshman at NYU and it was in Greenwich village in the middle of the punk years. So I dropped out after two years to play in bands and I played in bands for about Oh, I played in bands a total of like 10 years, but uh, for a while there, I was pretty serious and touring and all that. Uh, And uh, by the time I was 25, I figured if I wasn't a rock and roll star, it probably wouldn't happen. And I turned 25 and I wasn't a rock and roll star. So I went back to college and finished my degree. And then I really didn't know what to do. So I, I signed up for grad school as something to do because I couldn't find a good job. And uh, there they basically train you to be a professor. I didn't really want to be a professor, but what the hell? I was on full, full academic scholarship, which was the advantage of going to a very small department that had a lot of money. And I could do whatever I wanted. I could design my own program. Comparative literature is, is about that. It's you decide what to compare and then they figure out if you're any good at it. So it was a little weird. But uh, I got to do that. And uh, by the time I graduated, I figured, all right, now I better get a professor job. And uh, I did, in fact, get one in New York City, which is good. But uh, I didn't like that job at all. And uh, I was out after four years. Uh, I was, okay. I've done enough of this. Let me go uh, be a writer, which the opportunity had come up. I wasn't planning on being a writer. I wasn't planning on being a cocktail writer anyway. Originally, I, when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a, a novelist of some kind, preferably famous one. But <laughs> it turns out I can't write novels for beans and uh, I can write about cocktails. So that's what I do. Is that what brought you um, to be a writer for Esquire magazine? Mostly that was good luck mm-hmm. and uh, desperation. It was a really good opportunity and I grabbed onto it as hard as I could. So I wrote about cocktails very hard for them. And uh, that got me a job as contributing editor and their cocktail guy. 
Uh, it didn't get me necessarily a living wage, but because I was the cocktail guy at Esquire, that opened a lot of doors for other things. And uh, I was able to put together a living. It was it was hard at first. And my wife and I had a three-year-old at home. Uh, so, you know, it was uh, it was a big jump. But uh, Karen backed me, thank God, and uh, believed that this was worth doing because she could see that uh, being a professor was no fun for me. And uh, it turned out this ended up being fun. <laughs> Who knew? Yeah, I would, I would, I would bet on being a cocktail writer over a professor any day. So I think well, you made the right choice. I think so too. Mostly because of the people I've met in the bar business, I have to say, and in the drinks business, it's a great friendly business. You know, yeah. Uh, there's sure there's some backstabbing there is in every business, but there's not nearly as much as there was in academia. People are much nicer to each other. They treat each other better. Uh, there's a lot of camaraderie and friendship. Uh, jealousy is kept in the background instead of driving everything, which you see a lot of in, in academia. Uh, so this was this was much more pleasant. You know, the, the, the ideal is to be a bartender and bartenders are nice or at least friendly and welcoming. And so uh, that's really what I enjoyed the most about this. Where did you go from Esquire? When was your, what, what was the next step from there that kind of pursued and expanded your career into writing about spirits? Well, I, uh, once I had the, es I kept the Esquire gig until 2016. So for 17 years, I worked for them, which is a good long time. <laughs> uh, and I was on the columnist for about 14 of those years, a monthly column for Esquire. And, and, uh, that was a lot of work, but at, early on, I was a drinks editor at uh, Gotham Magazine, which didn't last very long, N neither my job nor the magazine. Uh, I was at Wine and Spirits for a while. I was the drinks editor. Esquire was fine with me working for other magazines as long as they weren't magazines like Esquire. So uh, I was the drinks editor at Sever, which uh, was really hard and weird. That was a weird job. Uh, I wrote for all kinds of newspapers. I wrote a couple columns for Newsweek. I wrote, I wrote for everybody. I wrote for Real Simple. I wrote for Caribbean Bride. <laughs> I wrote for, uh, you know, anybody who would pay me for a while there. And uh, then in 2005, I was one of the founding members of Bar Beverage Alcohol Resource, mm -hmm. which was really helpful and really great because I was partners with my mentors, Paul Packholt and Dale DeGroff, uh, plus Steve Olson and Doug Frost and Andy Seymour, all, you know, real experts and excellent, excellent friends and people to work with. And we really did something different. Uh, we came up with a training program to train good bartenders to be good high-end cocktail bartenders. So to train them in all the spirits they needed to know to uh, train them in the history of mixology and the histories of cocktails and all, all that just trivia and, and background knowledge that makes a great bartender into a true expert. And we've been doing that ever since. That led to Bar Smarts, the on-the-road version with Pernod Ricard, which uh, is more basic, but we've trained literally thousands of bartenders with that. And that's yeah. you know probably the thing I'm most proud of is uh, the number of uh, people we've helped to get a foot into the business and to get ahead and to, to build careers. Uh, that that's great. You know, that's like really reaching out to people and, and giving them a hand. So uh, that I'm, that I'm very proud of. 
Yeah. And you should be, I mean, our smarts and the five day are looked as, as that go-to program for education around spirits, like you said, around history. And then I also believe it's become like a family and a community as well. Yeah. Bar five day grad is, is, you know, part, it is, it is part of a family, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and you know that, oh, this person uh, who I have not met, oh, you're a grad too. Uh, we'll get along fine. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Like my, I, I know what you know. I know I can trust you to do this correctly. Yeah. It's pretty awesome. Um, you know, David, one of the things, one of the many things that you're known for, at least in our century and our time, is for writing two of the most celebrated books about cocktails. And I would love for you to talk to us about what that process was and maybe some gems that you discovered for your research. And, you know, I'm talking about Imbibe and Punch. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, those... Uh, Buckle up, everyone. <laughs> yeah, Imbibe kind of came out partly by chance and partly by desperation because I was kind of struggling along. I'd written two cocktail books and a music book and they hadn't done great. And I was like, okay, I really got to step up my game here. And uh, I helped to organize a tribute to Jerry Thomas, the great bartender, the guy, you know, who wrote in 1862 published the first bartender's guide. And uh, this was back in 2003. We did a slow food tribute to Jerry Thomas at the Plaza with Dale and Audrey Saunders and the late great Gaz Regan and Sasha Petrosky, also Robert Hess. And, you know, uh, it was it was this fantastic crew that we had. Dr. Cocktail, Ted Hay, uh, the bartender from the Plaza, who uh, his name escapes me at the moment, but he had attended bar at the famous black and white ball there in the sixties. So uh, this was, this was a really great thing. But uh, as part of that, Ted Hay and I came up with a little booklet about uh, holding all the recipes for the drinks and a little bio of Jerry Thomas. And my job was to write that bio. I turned that, that one page bio into a book. <laughs> so basically because I had started doing research and then I did more research on Jerry Thomas And, you know, throughout it, I found out a lot of stuff. I found where he was buried, and uh, I've led many groups of bartenders up to uh, find his grave. Uh, I found uh, his birth date, his death date, uh, all kinds of stuff, Uh, all kinds of biographical stuff. I found that he wrote a second book that's lost. Uh, Hopefully someday a copy will turn up. Uh, That's the thing I would like to see the most. Um, uh, So all, all these gems. But then when I sat down to write the book, it was originally going to be just about him and uh, just about the drinks in his book. But there were so many other drinks around at the time that were important. I thought I'd add them too, because my my mantra was, what would Jerry Thomas do? Would he stick with the, with, with the rules here or would he go and do something great? Let me do what Jerry would do and I'll try to do something great. So I tried to add like all the great American drinks and research their history as, as well as I could. And uh, that's what that book was all about. But as part of writing that, <laughs> uh, the book got really huge. And when I turned it in, my editor just took one look at it and said, oh, no, you know, this is one and a half times the length that you're contracted for where we can't publish this. You're going to have to cut like a third of this. Or uh, so uh, I was uh, a little taken aback. It's not easy to cut that much. Until I looked at the book again, and I realized that about a third of the book was punch bowl drinks. And as I had learned while putting together the book, Jerry Thomas didn't even collect those recipes, probably. 
uh, it seems like those were collected by his editor, uh, his editors, and then they brought him on board for the American like bar drinks. So I said, okay, let me just take all those out and I'll put them, you know, save them for another book. It'll be easy. Famous last words. It turned out not to be easy at all, but I did get a second book out of it. And that was the punch book. Uh, and so I got two books out of this uh, huge amount of research I did. You know, it was like four, four or five years worth of research and uh, four years worth of research and uh, some very desperate writing. But the book finally came out and uh, uh, both books came out and uh, the imbibe has done very well. Uh, Punch less so, but it's still it just paid back its advance uh, last year. So that was nice. Uh, imbibe paid out a long time ago and I even did a second edition. So that's very good. That's that's fascinating. Could you share with us kind of one of the one of the stories during your research that stood out the most that you were most um, excited about? Well, the thing that I'm probably most excited about uh, was a figuring out how to make a blue blazer uh, because I knew uh, Dale knew how to make them, but he he made them one way uh, where you heat the whiskey and then you pour in boiling water. Uh, but you got to heat the whiskey to get the to get vapor from it to get it to catch. In my research, I found another recipe for it uh, that said you you have to use overproof whiskey, and that was the key to making it uh, the old way. Is they used cask strength scotch because that's how scotch came. It came in barrels, and uh, it didn't really come bottled until later. So when Jerry Thomas was making it, he was using scotch whiskey from the cask. And that burns right away. So uh, I was able to make uh, blue blazers without uh, having to uh, prepare in advance by, you know, preheating the whiskey or anything. And that was uh, that was great. I could not make them as elegantly as Dale. Nobody can. But I could certainly make them. And I've made thousands since, uh, or at least hundreds. <laughs> it could be up to a thousand blue blazers. I've made a lot of blue blazers over the years. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a silly stunt. You pour flaming whiskey back and forth between two metal mugs. I also figured out the kind of mugs that Jerry Thomas used and, uh, that helped. And, uh, so that was one thing. Uh, the other thing was figuring out just how important punch is and its history, kind of recovering it, uh, digging it out. It hadn't really been put together in one place before. And this was the first mixed drink with spirits to become popular around the world. And its history is is very long and uh, full of wild incidents, like the uh, time a British admiral filled a uh, huge ornamental fountain uh, in a plaza in Spain uh, with punch. And uh, the ship's carpenters built a little rowboat and put one of the ship's boys in there to row around and serve everybody. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> that, I mean... I, I'm behind that 100%. 100%. If there's one piece of drink memorabilia in the world that I could have, it would be that rowboat. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. I want to take a ride in that rowboat. I mean, That's come funny. on, right? <laughs> that is super fun. Uh, I mean, can you imagine just how crazy that was? But, you know, sailors could do anything. Ship's carpenter said, oh, rowboat? No problem. Boy-sized rowboat? Sure. Here you go. That's <laughs> <laughs> so cool. Yeah. Well, we know that you're... Um, that your book journey doesn't just end there and that you have been working on a project for a very long time and would love 
for you to tell our listeners about what you've been doing uh, with Oxford and what's um, what they can expect okay. out of this book and what has that journey been like for you and the, <laughs> and the research. We want to know all. Oh of my God! It. Well, uh, I could go on for a long time. This is a, this is a absolutely crazy project. Uh, be careful of what you get yourself talked into. About 2011. Uh, my friend Garrett Oliver, who had, uh, was just finishing the uh, the Oxford Companion to Beer, a beautiful, excellent book, very well done. And I know it had been driving him nuts. Uh, he came to me and he said, uh, you know, Oxford's looking for somebody to do a companion to spirits and cocktails. And I gave them your name. I hope that's okay. And I was like, ooh, Oxford Companion to Spirits and Cocktails. There should be one. And uh, I talked to the Oxford people and they said, yeah, we, we'd like you to edit this thing. And uh, so I said, all right, which was my first mistake <laughs> because I've been working on it ever since. And uh, I think I started work on this probably around early 2012. And uh, that's a long time ago, uh, just starting to scope it out. And then uh, we uh, finally got articles assigned to people. Uh, I got an assistant editor, my dear friend, Noah Rothbaum. Thank God for him. Uh, we finally managed to get uh, articles assigned. We've got like something like 150, 200 contributors. Uh, I've got a figure somewhere. I just can't, uh, I don't, I, I don't want to hunt it down, but there are a lot of contributors. We've got some wonderful people. We've got some people who are no longer with us who wrote articles for us. It's all, you know, it's all due out this November. So uh, hopefully, uh, Everybody will run out and buy it. It's going to be a very large book with uh, over 1,100 entries. That's a lot of entries. Uh, on Well, it's not the usual booze book. We're not just covering uh, whiskey, rum, gin, tequila, vodka, and brandy and liqueurs. We're covering things like baiju from China in detail. We're covering uh, lambanog from the Philippines. Ogogoro from Nigeria. We've got spirits from around the world, uh, you know, covering in some detail, like when they were invented, who, how they're made, who makes them. Uh, we're, we're trying to like really uh, use this as an opportunity to, uh, to uh, break open the world of spirits. And, and uh, uh, there, there are people distilling in every continent. There are people, including Antarctica, they make vodka in, in Antarctica sometimes. Uh, every other continent has got tons of distilling. They've got rich histories. Uh, I mean, it, it's a, this book has taken a long time because this stuff has never been collected in one place. Uh, there is no such thing as a history of distilling in Asia, for instance. And they were distilling in Asia probably over 2000 years ago and uh, had a, had a uh, spirits trade, as in people sh shipping stuff from one port to another in jars full of booze. Uh, going back to the 800s, something like that. That's a really long time ago. Mm -hmm. It's really old. Uh, so there's all kinds of stuff like that that we're trying to uh, get into and at least uh, lift the lid on. You know, we might not get to the bottom of the pot, but at least we'll let you smell the soup. So uh, I, I, I think that's <laughs> fascinating, David, and I don't mean to interrupt, but I think what you bring oh, up is 
is so important because, um, you know, we had a recent guest on all the way from Nairobi, uh, Kenya. And the one thing, you know, he's a, the rum bishop and, and funny enough, my not interesting enough, my husband's also from South Africa. So when I told him Uh that Eugene and, and he's called, he, you know, calls himself the, the room bishop, I Mm -hmm. asked him, um, well, and he asked me, he was like, well, that's interesting because we don't make rum in Africa and we don't really drink rum in Africa. And I was like, he goes, you know, they make cane spirit, sugar cane spirit. And I was like, well, that's rum, well, right? That's and rum. He's, he's not a, he's not a, a, a liquor expert, but right, right. as I was talking to Eugene, he's really advocating for people to invest in Africa because it is kind of the motherland for rum. And there's communities that have been creating this cane liquor for centuries and and decades, but they don't have the infrastructure, the resources to actually have distilling houses and and uh, and to really package it. Right? They can't afford that, but they but it's part of their livelihood. So when we say that you know rum, this country owns the rum category of the Caribbean, it's it's not necessarily true. So I just love that that that's what you're doing with the Oxford. uh, Oh, I mean. You know, rum is rum is my favorite category to write about because it has just the craziest history. Uh, it's documented in India in the 1200s and probably a thousand years before that they were making rum. Rum, whenever people make sugar, they've been making rum is my suspicion, you know, <laughs> and uh, wherever, wherever cane grows, uh, rum is very easy to make. Uh, and uh, Africa has a long tradition of it. Asia all over Asia, there's a long tradition of it. South America, uh, Mexico made tons of uh, chiringuito in the, uh, as they called it, uh, in the uh, 1600s and 1700s and 1800s. There's just lots of, you know, it's everywhere, everywhere in the tropics uh, where cane grows, there there is rum making. There's a belt that goes all around the world. And uh, I would love to see more of those, uh, more spirits from Africa. I'd love to see African palm spirits. West Africa, they don't make a lot of rum. In West Africa, they make spirit out of palm sap, and uh, they make a lot of it, and it's all made in villages. Hmm. Uh, I, I love uh, what Ron Cooper did with Del Maguey, and I'd love to see that for Africa, where you're taking village producers and investing in their villages. You know, not not making like brand new modern uh slick distilleries where all the all the the profit goes to the the german company that makes the stills i'd like to see the 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 people who are making good stuff in these villages and i've tasted some of this stuff and it is good uh find the good producers and invest in them personally you know i would love to see that absolutely bring it to the villages Mm -hmm. there's a world of villages still and and a lot of those villages have stills in the middle of them I think that what you said is so important, Um, you know, that a lot of these villages still have stills in them. I was in the back, I'm just going to call it jungle in India, and uh, they were making Finny. Finny. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fenny yeah. is crazy stuff. Fenny. And it, and and then as we were, um, Jamie and I, we were going through a spice farm. And mind you, I'm from Shorewood, Illinois. So when I think yeah. of farm, it's flat, it's corn. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I was enough. like, I was like, holy crap, this is a jungle and they're just in there foraging for stuff. But I can't tell you how many stills and villagers we came across. It was, it was bananas. I mean, just like 
every, every um, maybe half a mile, you would see a village and you'd see people making their fenny. And, and that's again, another spirit we don't hear about. And the villagers are not appreciated around the world. No. And you know, some of those people really know what they're doing. I've had some fairly nasty fenny. I have to say, I've got a couple bottles of fenny in my liquor room here at home because I collect weird spirits or it's not weird. It's just, it's just different for us. But uh, there's some good fanny I've had, too. Uh, And the same with everything, you know, Uh, you you go around these villages and a lot of these people know what they're doing and they're making good stuff. I think in the past, there's been a bias to that to say that uh, among historians and archaeologists and all kinds of other people uh, to say that distilling is really hard and you, you know, it takes like years of training and, and uh, huge amounts of like equipment to distill. That's simply not true. Uh, distilling is very democratic. It's hard to do it extremely well. It's not that hard to do it okay, you know? <laughs> and uh, it's very easy to do it badly. So, uh, I mean, it's everywhere in the world, uh, in, not in the, uh, in the big industrialized democracies because of taxation. Uh, it's kind of taken distilling out of people's culture. But if you go to Eastern Europe, there's tons of distilling in all the small villages and towns in Russia and uh, in uh, Belarus, Ukraine, uh, Central Asia. Everybody, you know, there's a lot of Samagon made, which is uh, home, homemade spirit. And there's a, there's a whole lot of that. There's something like 40% of the spirit made in uh, Russia is, is uh, made at home. So um, illegally, but, you know, that's not my problem. <laughs> Even in, um, in Korea, I remember growing up where my family would make their own distilled spirit out of rice. Um, and then we have the soju. That's a big thing there as well. Yeah, so. huge. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest spirits in the world, it turns out. In terms of volume, uh, they sell more shoju, uh, soju. It's amazing. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. More than vodka. Oh, my God. And, you know, it's all drunk in Korea. <laughs> yeah. And it's all drunk in there. <laughs> <laughs> Koreans, if you'll pardon the generalization, do like to party. Well, some pe- I, I had heard the story from, you know, uh, some ex-military uh, 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 people that you know, soldiers and officers that would leave Korea and they would try to bring soju back with them. This Uh woman that actually served, she had told me the story and she just fell in love with soju while she was in Korea. And she tried to bring it back and customs put a stamp on it that was like, not appropriate for human consumption, oh, something like that, and oh, and would not let her bring it in. So it's oh, funny that God. we see it now, but I, it's probably not the real soju that you would get yeah. in Korea. Well, you know, a lot of the, the stuff you get in Korea now is huge and industrial. I bet hers was better. Yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, it might have been a little overproof. Yes, probably. Oh, but, my gosh. Uh, but I mean, so, so that's what this, uh, the Oxford Companion is, is uh, that's the part that I'm most excited about is, is, is hopefully, you know, starting a conversation about some of this stuff and, uh, and, and trying to uh, open up a little bit the doors uh, that behind which all this interesting spirit is hiding. Plus we've got uh, all kinds of uh, it, it's spirits and cocktails. So we've got histories of cocktails with uh, documented uh, origins for everything possible with, you know, the, the original newspaper articles that uh, were there at the time. Uh, so 
you can go and look it up. Those are, you know, we've got links or, not, or at least uh, references to those. We've got um, biographies of bartenders. Hmm. That's new. <laughs> yeah. You know, famous bartenders from history. Hmm. Like when were they born? Where did they grow up? You know, uh, uh, just even that, that's very hard to determine a lot of the time. What was their last name? You know, they're famous for having just a first name. You know, it's like Charlie, the head bartender at so-and-so. Well, it turns out uh, here's his name. Here's when he was born, when he died. Uh, so we've tried to do a lot of stuff like that. Just basic stuff. Uh, histories of brands. We've gone back into the old newspapers and magazines from back in the day before the uh, marketing department said, uh, I've got to write a brand history. What do I say here? I don't know. Make something up. You know, uh, so we're we're going back to uh, to 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 the origins for a lot of these things, and some of the stories are not what we've been told, and some of them, surprisingly, some of the weird ones turn out to be true. So uh, you never know. There's there's a lot of stuff in this book, a lot of stuff on distilling, uh, histories of distillation, uh, types of stills, all all that kind of thing. It's a mixture of technical stuff and uh, cultural stuff. Uh, and uh, you know history and some scientific stuff. It's it's pretty broad. It's going to be a, a, a big fat book full of things. <laughs> I I can't wait to read it. Oh, uh, you and me both. I I cannot. <laughs> I can't wait, wait to, to see it out and, um, and 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 off of my desktop. I, I bet. <laughs> um, David, you know, throughout your career, and you've had the. The pleasure, I'm sure, of doing all this research as sometimes you probably want to pull out your hair too. But what have you found to be the common thread that ties all of these spirits together, Where, whether it be like a spiritus from Poland to a bourbon in Kentucky? You know, what, what's that one thing that you're seeing that ties us all together? Well, you know, spirits get uh, historically have kind of a bad rap as being... Uh, dangerous. And, uh, and, you know, that's the thing that the prohibition people jump on. And indeed, spirits can be abused horribly. And that's always a problem. But on the other side, there's something about spirits that, you know, people get together convivially, and uh, boy, do they cheer you up fast, you know, (laughs) and uh, there's that 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 sense of convivial, uh, conviviality that that comes with the with you know toasting a shot of uh, uh raising a, schna- a a shot of like german corn which is basically unaged dry whiskey you know and it's like okay everybody sits around and they might have uh, their little shot of corn and their their uh beer chaser and uh they call that a herrengedeck a, a gentleman's suit <laughs> because it's what the gent has it's it's as 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 necessary as wearing a suit they go together just like the uh the coat and the jacket so you need the beer and the shot and uh and uh everybody sits around and suddenly things get jolly fast and uh, that's that's the thing that uh that I think really ties it together from korea to uh to uh china i i i i haven't uh drunk spirits in korea but i've done a bu- i did a bunch of toasting in china and uh boy that was that was pretty rowdy uh central asia oh my oh my god those people are nuts uh, when I was drinking with them, uh, you know, any, anywhere I've been, uh, that's the thing that has struck me is just how, uh, jolly it gets, you know, with, uh, when, when you're, when you're drinking spirits with people, <laughs> I don't know. 
uh, again, it can be a real problem. But if you can keep it under control, there is nothing more fun. Could you share with us kind of through all your research, the first kind of recorded timing and, and where it was of when they fir- when somebody first made a distilled spirit? Like, where was that? It's, it's, this is really hard to say because uh, the problem is there's more than one kind of still. And some stills you can put together by using a clay cup and two clay pots. So good luck, uh, archaeologists, telling, you know, if they were distilling or not here. Uh, there are some kinds of uh, pots that have been found that are apparently stills uh, going back uh, 3,000 years and more. So it's possible that they were distilling alcohol then. We don't know. Uh, the most likely uh, place, the, the place where it seems like they first had an industry for this, and that's kind of what I start to look at is like there's a culture of this. It's not just a few people doing this occasionally. Uh, and that goes back to uh, the Gandharan kingdom in India, which is Gandhara is Kandahar. Now it's Afghanistan. Then it was, uh, you know, it was an independent kingdom up at the headwaters of the Indus River. And we're talking about 200 BC. So a long time ago, archaeologists have found in several of the the towns that they've dug up. And this was back in the 60s when you could do uh, things like researching the history of, uh, uh, you know, doing archaeological digs on the Afghan border. Right now, that's a pretty wild country. and And I don't think it's possible. You know, you're up near Peshawar and it's it's tough. But at the time, uh, they dug up things that looked like a back room with a number of, of stills in it and a front room with a number of cups. <laughs> that looks to me like a bar. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds like a bar to me. It sounds like a bar to me. OK, well, you know, the aging process is a little quick. It's this hallway here. But That's fascinating. <laughs> and uh, they would distill the stuff and uh, it would go right off the still into these big jars. They'd fill the jars up and store them and then uh, pour it out in the front. I mean, so we're talking uh, northern India from 200 B.C., the other interesting thing is that is the area and around the time when they first learned to boil down sugarcane juice in, into sugar. Hmm. And, and that gave you a lot of sugar byproducts that ferment very quickly. So it's quite possible that they were making rum and drinking rum there. I have a feeling because you are such a, um, a history buff and a historian and, and the historian that you must have an awful lot of beverage antiques in your home. Are you a collector of beverage I, antiques, David? I'm not a collector really of uh, antique bottles of stuff. Mm-hmm. I have a couple. I'm a collector of old bar gear, though. Oh, bar gear. We, that, would, that would be, you know, that's a, a bar in, that's a beverage antique. Can you tell us about some of the earliest pieces that you have? Oh, yeah. I've got uh, probably the earliest design of cocktail shaker. And it's two uh, silver-plated monogrammed tin cups, one that fits inside the other. However, boy, are they, you might have to bleep this, but boy, are they a piece of shit. (laughs) They are thin, silver-plated tin. And I mean, you just look at it and it dents. Uh, And that was the earliest, as far as I could tell, it's the earliest cocktail shaker. There is an 1871 book that has a picture of this very kind of shaker in it. So it's 1871 or before. I also have a handmade uh, 
julep strainer from the 1850s, uh, a couple things like that. Those are pretty old. Uh, my friend Greg Bohm, uh, the owner of Cocktail Kingdom, has more stuff. He's got some early uh, toddy sticks uh, uh, from the 1820s, something like that. It's very hard to find very old bar gear. Uh, you can get a lot of stuff from the 1880s and beyond, but anything before that is really tough. I, I do have a lot of stuff from the 1880s and beyond. Cocktail shakers, the first patented three-piece shaker. I've got one of those uh, from 1882 by a guy right here in Brooklyn where I live. All kinds of strainers. Uh, I've got European stuff, a lot of European shakers. I, I like those. They're, they're always very heavy, made out of very heavy-grade metal uh, because they were meant for hotel use, which meant high volume. So they made sure that they were heavily plated and that they were heavy so they wouldn't get dented and uh, that they could stand up to really strong use. I've got this Dutch thing uh, that uh, is probably from the 1920s, and that it weighs probably two pounds. It's two cups, one that fits into the other one. And it is just the heaviest thing imaginable. Oh, my goodness. The muscles I mean, on the person using know. God, what I were know. they I mean, thinking? <laughs> yeah, before you even put any ice in it, the thing's already heavy. <laughs> but uh, it's great to shake in because the ice just shatters. I mean, this thing murders ice. It, it, because The thing's really long. It's like two, uh, two long uh, pint cups that, you know, they fit into each other. The mouth of one fits into the mouth of the other. So you've got the ice flying like uh, eight or 10 inches and uh, it just goes from one end to the other and smashes on the bottom. It's uh, it's really fun to shake with. That thing is great. So I've got all kinds of stuff like that, all kinds of strainers. I mean, for a while there, I, I don't collect very much anymore, but for a while there, I was going very, very heavy on on the strainers and it was extremely geeky. I think of that movie Ghost World. I don't know if you guys ever saw that. Uh, about this uh, teenage high school girl who falls in with uh, record collectors who uh, co collect like old 78s uh, and blues records and stuff. And they have a party scene and you over here and one guy in the background is saying to the other going, no records. I don't really do records now. Now I'm into tone arms. That's kind of how I feel. <laughs> you know, I do strainers. <laughs> You do strainers. No, I don't do strainers. Now I do bar spoons. Oh my gosh. So it, it's just, it's pretty ridiculous, but you know, it's fun anyway. <laughs> That's great. So what is, what is the next steps for you with your book and, and getting released? I know we, we pushed off this time to record because you were knees deep wrapping it up and, and getting to your deadline. So I'm uh, almost at the dead. I'm, I'm past the deadline, but I pretty much met it. I've got a couple of, uh, entries I'm finishing up right now. And then uh, it's already most of it's 95% of the book is in of the manuscript. I'm doing, um, it's even more, it's more like 97%. And there are just a few entries that need editing and a few that need uh, finishing. And then uh, uh, we've got most of the illustrations in, there are a few that we're tracking down. Most of it's in proofreading already. It'll come back to me. I'll make a couple changes. It'll go, uh, to, to printing and then it'll come out. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's there. I mean, I can't believe that uh, this thing is pretty much done. <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do with your time once it's done? Uh, I do not know. No, that's not true. <laughs> no I have another plans. book that I just signed a contract for that I, I, I shouldn't talk about until they announce it, but uh, it, that's going to be very different. It'll be quicker and, and uh, much easier. It'll be fun to read and uh, it, it'll be a good surprise. 
Wow. Well, we are so looking forward to it. And I'm sure that, you know, this Oxford Companion uh, is going to be a must read for anybody in the industry and any connoisseur of spirits and cocktails. So it's- I, I certainly hope so. Uh, well, thank you for the great wishes. Uh, and, uh, you know, fingers crossed. Can you tell us um, what is your favorite cocktail? I'm sure no one's ever asked you this question. Oh, boy. I'm sure we are the first. I mean, it's like but... choosing among your children, you know, <laughs> and uh, in this case, I have a lot of children, but, uh, but you know, if I, if, if I had to really, really, really just have one, it's going to be a dry gin martini. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the one that I started with. And that's the one that I'm just going to finish with, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's my, uh, that's probably my go-to ultimately. I don't think there's a better drink. I love old fashions. I love daiquiris. I love a, a great mint julep. Uh, those are often fantastic, especially if you make the mint julep with brandy and rum, like I like to do. Mm. Uh, but if it had to be just one, it's going to be that dry gin martini. But you just can't go wrong with a dry gin no. martini. It's it's a classic. It's timeless. It's timeless. It's perfect. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, if you if you if you use enough vermouth. It's also a little bit mellow, you know, and it's yeah. it's not always rocket fuel. It mm-hmm. can be, there are so many different ways you can adjust it that are all good. I used to have a uh, dog tag that I had made, oh, 15 years ago, maybe a little longer at one of those novelty, let's make you a dog tag machines. And it said, uh, in case of emergency, five parts gin, one part vermouth, twist of lemon peel. <laughs> And, you know, that's a, that's awesome. Do you still wear it? <laughs> uh, every once in a while, I do. <laughs> in case I get hit by a crosstown bus, you know, hey, just in case, so people just know what to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, it's it's my medic alert tag. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's really funny. <laughs> yeah, what the hell? <laughs> I thought it was funny, yeah. but uh, yeah, you know, the martini is. Uh, I went to high school with Audrey Saunders. Uh, she was in my graduating class. We It was a big enough school. We didn't really know each other. But uh, we both grew up drinking gin martinis because that was the culture of, that was what you could steal from your, your parents' liquor cabinet where we went to high school on the North Shore of Long Island, which was pretty waspy. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, we learned to drink martinis early on. It was probably a rite of passage too, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Also, I, you know, I moved into uh, Manhattan when I was 18 mm-hmm. and I couldn't really afford uh, drinking in the fancy bars or the, 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 the discos or anything. I drank in old man bars because they were very cheap. And there, if I went in and asked them for a tequila sunrise, they would basically just be, look at me like, get the hell out of here, kid. <laughs> or, uh, you know, if I asked for, for a uh, Long Island iced tea, they'd mm-hmm. roll their eyes. They'd never heard of it. I asked for a dry martini. They knew how to make that. And they probably made a good one, you know, they did very dry. Yeah. Uh, But uh, they, they had no problem with that. They didn't, they didn't mind because they'd made so many that it wasn't, it was okay. It was normal, even in like dive bars to drink martinis back then, because that's what people drank, you know? Yeah. Uh, It wasn't just high balls and shots. They'd be fine. They had they had cocktail glasses. The fancier places, the restaurants put everything in a white wine glass. In the dive mm. bars, they still had martini glasses. It's really funny. It's it funny was, how uh, because 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 the old men wanted theirs in a, in a martini glass. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's so fun to see like how the cocktails have changed and evolved over the years, but in so many ways have stayed the same as well. So yeah, I'm thinking, you know, I'm hoping uh, when we get out of COVID here, uh, I think there's been a little bit of a readjustment towards traditional mm -hmm. drinks and maybe a little less like, let me make the craziest drink imaginable. And uh, please look at my cocktail menu. I mm -hmm. think people are going to be so busy partying, they're going to have a hard time uh, focusing on the cocktail menu. But we'll see what happens. I'm terrible yeah. at predicting things. So, <laughs> Well, listen, uh, Julie and I, we want to thank you so much for being on Served Up, David. We are very excited for your book that is coming <laughs> out anytime now, The Oxford Companion. Um, I, I just can't even express to you how grateful we are that you came on Served Up. Oh, I'm so happy um, to. It, it's great to see you guys. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, thank you for giving me a chance to talk about this stuff. Uh, I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, I can't wait to uh, see what happens next with Served Up. Well, Julie and I want to wish you, as we always do, just great health and a lot of peace. And so, to you both. Thank cheers you so much. Thanks, Cheers, man. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers.